Welcome to the Seedcast, brought to you by Armor Seed. Okay, we want to welcome everyone to the Seedcast this morning. With us today, we have the Armor Product Development Team, and we're really glad to have them here. We have with us this morning Jeff Pangle, who's our lead product development guy, and then we have with us Jay Middleton, who works up in the Kentucky, Tennessee area, and we're excited about having a conversation about how Armor uh, particularly armor picks their products but we're also going to have some conversation just generally about how the industry looks at product development jeff why don't you uh introduce yourself briefly and then we'll let jay introduce himself to kind of tell a little bit about your background how you got the armor seat all right kelly thank you good to be here today um when i stopped to think about the uh the history of jeff pangle it goes back to 1983 when uh i graduated from college at ut in knoxville and uh, joined this agricultural world. I've uh, been in the seed business the whole time, which has been a real blessing. Um, I've enjoyed that part of my career immensely. It's, it's taken me from uh, uh, production uh, emphasis in the business to sales, to uh, sales management, and now to product development in the last, uh, probably the last 15 years has been revolving around product development. So been with various companies throughout the uh, industry. Uh, before I came to Armor, I was working with Pioneer as the DSM for uh, Arkansas. And I had come to know uh, Kelly and Carl and Mark through the relationships in this Arkansas seed business. And then I get this call one day and, hey, you know, come talk to Armor about being the sales manager. Um, so it was kind of a, one of those things that kind of rocks your world just a little bit because I thought with... Um, you know, being with Pioneer, the big company, uh, it might be a place to ride out your career or to take care of, you know, to take care of my family. But we made the transition to Armor, and uh, as I shared with one of my teammates last week, it was the uh, best decision I ever made in my life for my career, for my family. And uh, it's been something that I will always treasure uh, looking back at the times that I've got to spend with the team at Armor. Just one quick thing there. You, you've come through – training in all aspects but down deep it's always been product development right yeah it's it's always been product development i'll never forget uh, uh one of the things that kelly always made new new hires do for armor was take a, a profile test and uh, the nice young lady who did the profile test said, said uh, you know that uh, jeff's not cut out for sales and uh, so that was kind of a, that was kind of an eye-opening uh, little event in in the, that process. But actually, it's true because I love product development. I love the testing process, um, and uh, so it's it's been a perfect fit for me, really. Jay, give us a little background about yourself. Yes, uh, thank you for having me today. Um, I my career started much more recently. I. I started as an intern working for J. Ray Seeds uh, in high school and in college, and I graduated college in May of 2014 and started full-time working for Armor in May of 2014. And um, I have a little experience for Armor with production, and now it's full-time with product development. So, What do, what do you like about product development? Uh, it's just... I guess it's being on the edge of what's new and what's coming and and seeing the latest and greatest before other people get to see the latest and greatest. I, I really enjoy that. 
Yeah, that we we've all talked about that over the years. That's one of the best parts of getting to see new products is knowing that how they're going to impact growers once we get them into the marketplace. So three things that we kind of live by here at Armor: uh, one's deliver top products, two's deliver um, agronomic support, and then three's to advocate for farmers. But you see that first one for us; it's always been first is to deliver top products. It's not always been the case in the trade that people have been that way today it's kind of table stakes would y'all agree i mean if you don't have the top products you're not even in the game anymore and so what we want to talk about today is kind of how that's how the product development process has changed for the industry and then we'll talk a little bit later some specifics around armor in general and then maybe a little bit more armor specifics Um, but we know it it starts with uh, procuring some type of genetics and getting a testing situation in place where we know what we've got so then we can release to the growers. So when we talk about that, Jeff, you know, you've been in the industry now for probably close to 40 years, 35, 40 years. So when you think about the history of product selection, how's that changed in your career? Uh, it's been dramatic. Um, I can remember um, prior to traits, let's say, um, all the business revolved around conventional breeding processes. A lot of that would come from um, company breeding programs, but a lot of it came from university breeding programs. A lot of a lot of universities had public, what was called public breeding programs, and they would release um, soybean varieties, rice varieties, wheat varieties through their traditional breeding programs. Even the large companies, uh, the large national companies would do the same thing. So they had basically um, uh, a very traditional breeding process. And then in the late 90s, let's say 96, 97, when Roundup Trait became, uh, uh, came to the market uh, via soybeans, um, that was a big, that was a huge game changer for uh, product development. Um, uh, you go back maybe even a year or two earlier when BT came to uh, the BT trait came into the corn uh, breeding side of the business. Uh, that began to change the whole process um, from just a very traditional breeding process to a very dynamic breeding process, which has changed tremendously even in the last 20 years. Jay, what about you? You a little bit shorter career, obviously, but even as fast as things are moving now, I bet you've got some things you've seen. What what's changed since you've been around? Well, I, I don't I don't know that a lot has changed. I mean, I don't remember before traits, but I think it's a uh, it's very eye opening to see how fast these things are moving and how fast you know everybody's trying to keep up with with new new products and new traits. Um, just always coming to the market every year. And so it, it's definitely a race to try to, to to keep up with the changes from year to year. What do you guys think the biggest reason for all this change has been? Well, I think competition plays a big part in that. And um, there's, uh, there's competition in the company. There's competition with farmers for world um, uh, commodity selling and pricing and and markets, there's competition to feed people around the world. So there's a, it's just a, a ramping up of production has uh, demanded that the product pipeline be bigger, faster, better the whole time. 
And uh, so whether that's an introduction of a new trait into the marketplace that protects the crops and makes the crop better and, and more usable to the, to the end user, or whether it's a situation where it's yield gain um, for um, the farmers to be more competitive in the world and meet demand for their crop, it's just, it's just getting faster and faster and uh, all the time. I think one of the interesting things, we talk about it internally some, the process of product selection today looks much easier than it is. I think all the industry, the industry itself has made product selection and product release so seamless that I'm not sure growers today have, I don't really want to use the word appreciation because I think they appreciate the products for sure. I'm not sure they have the same knowledge they used to have about the process. Would y'all agree with that? I would say 100%. Um, because there's, uh, if you would, if you were to peel back the screen and look into the production cycle and the demands of what has to take place there, and all the things that are evaluated there, and the whole processes uh, that take place, um, it, it's a, a pretty complex industry. The generation, Jay, your age. It's kind of interesting to me. They, a lot of those guys probably never even known or had knowledge of how products used to be released. And growers used to be on release boards back when it was all university. A lot of growers knew about products two years before they were released. And today, I would say they're on a generation of in your generation probably don't probably don't have any knowledge of that. They're just looking for the new one every year. Is that is that how you see yeah, it? Yeah, that's fair. And and it's also interesting that especially on corn, you know, we've been evaluating these things maybe for two to three years, especially coming from the, the breeders. Um, you know, it may be five or six years that they've been evaluating something before it goes to the farm for them, and it's new to them. So, so we have a lot of data and a lot of information on these things before they get to the farm. So you guys – we were talking a little bit offline before we, before we start here about life cycle timing and how that's changed. Uh, I just remember my career, soybean variety came out. We might plant that thing for 10 years, Jeff. Uh, today, if we plant a soybean variety for more than three years, we've done something. But what, what just from y'all's perspective, what's that life cycle look like in the, in the crops now? Kind of let people out there know how fast things are going. So, Jeff, you speak to that a little bit about corn. What What's the life cycle in corn these days? Well, by the time we meet with uh, an originator, which is the breeder group that we would meet with uh, to look at new products, they, uh, like Jay said, we, they've probably been looking at the product for two to three years to, th to know that it's gotten to a, a stage where it can be advanced. It's better than the current products that they're using, so they're going to move it forward, and then they, they share that with us. And at that point, then we'll make the decision uh, to, to test and or produce at that point in time. And if it's a corn hybrid that lasts into the commercial marketplace, if a corn hybrid lasts three or four years now, that's a long life cycle. Beans may even shorter. A uh, bean cycle, and unless it's an unusual situation, a bean cycle may be two to three years and, and, until we're replacing it with something new that's bigger, better, faster. Um, so the, the, the pipeline of products is vast and deep, and the turnover is quicker. A lot of 
folks I know because when you're in our industry, you hear the the positives and the negatives about genetic gain and genetic turnover. Um, but one of the things that I've noticed is that people have a tendency to think we turn products over faster just so we can sell more. But when you you guys think about it, what's the purpose? Why has the product cycle or the life cycle of these products, why has that sped up so fast? The, uh, the process of g- genetic gain in soybeans is somewhere around a half a bushel to eight-tenths of a bushel a year. So in the breeding cycle, that's how much the breeders are saying they're going to gain by the next release of new products. Sometimes it's even more than that. Corn would be more like a bushel and a half to two bushels. So you can see over the process of five years how much genetic yield potential that you'd be giving up if you weren't moving to the current products and uh, soybean varieties and corn hybrids. Now, that all said, the one thing that you can't give up on is the agronomics. The agronomics have to come along with the yield or we don't have the complete package. And the complete package is what we're looking for so that we can uh, sell that through our brand and also to help farmers, you know, be the most uh, competitive, be the most productive that they can be. Jay, you got any comments around that? Well, another gain is is just additional traits. And you think about like 1447, one of our uh, highest corn volume you know, as a company, and it's only two or three years in the marketplace, and now there's anth- uh, ASR, anthracnose stock rot traits, and uh, a lot of the things we're looking at now all have that trait in it, whereas, you know, one of our high-volume products that's only two or three years old doesn't have that trait. So it's it's keeping up with these traits, too, you know, trying to have the, the newest and latest and greatest thing in available in the bag. Think about the method of uh, genetic releases or product releases from the time you started, Jeff, old traditional type breeding programs to the new type. Why don't you take us through that a little bit? What's What did it look like then? What does it look like now when, when these companies are, are coming up with these new products for us? Let's say in the old days, what the breeders would typically do is they would look at, um, let's say it's a soybean, new line of soybeans that they're going to want to release, and they would look at uh, two different types of products that they would like to cross. They think that maybe product A brings uh, a large amount of yield and product B is uh, superior agronomics, and they would cross those two products uh, and then begin the process of developing those lines, which could take 10 or 12 years in that whole process to get a product to market. Today, with molecular breeding, uh, identifying genes molecularly, uh, CRISPR technology, and uh, a lot of the different new uh, platforms that are available, um, we know more about the parents of the products than ever before. And so it allows the uh, breeders to make better crosses and they can be farther down the line in their product selection processes uh, than it would be if they were taking 10 or 12 years to actually make sure that the product that they bred at that point turns out like they thought it would be. Now we know so much more about the genetics uh, internally uh, through the DNA process that we can make better educated guesses about what product's going to do when those two parents combine, and then when that comes to marketplace, we do it at a much more fast pace. With the computer age has really helped. I mean, we, we know that 
the different companies, the, the larger companies that do a lot of plant breeding, they use a little bit different technologies. Some of them use chippers, some of them use molecular mapping, some of them use, but <clears throat> I had heard it said that one of the particular companies that uses a chipper looks at about 10,000 soybean crosses a day. Whereas probably when, when you and I got in the trade, it probably couldn't look at a thousand a year because they were doing them traditionally where they had to, to observe everything by the eye instead of seeing it uh, as a uh, function of a computer and how fast it can make it work. It's kind of crazy to think about that, if, to think about how actually how good those guys were back in the day, right? Cause, Absolutely, because it's, I mean, it, it's all at the end of the day as far as a release of a product comes down to uh, how many numbers of products you can review. How many number of products that you can get into the field, which is also another limiting factor. Uh, you know, thousands of crosses uh, become, you know, single parent, parent row plants, and then they become progeny rows. And so it takes up time, it takes up space, it takes up energy. And the, the, the more that we can be educated and knowledgeable about what's going on inside that plant and why, uh, the better we can be. And uh, it will always be a numbers game uh, just because of the – vast number of products uh, that are available, either inbreds for corn breeding or uh, parent varieties for soybeans. Well, not only that, it's a race because, as we see with weed resistance, nature always finds a way, right? So we're talking about, um, Jay mentioned ASR a minute ago. You think about the new method of uh, plant breeding. You think about something like stem canker and soybeans. Why is that so important to us today to be able to see that in front of it, right? And today, the, the, the new methods give us the opportunity to see those type of things before we spend the money and time to release them. If something doesn't have stem canker, we're not going to release it. That's, that's kind of our philosophy here at Armour. But we, that's one of the things we ask right off the bat. Does it have stem canker? Used to, they couldn't tell us that until they looked at it. Now we pretty much know that from the very beginning. So that's really helped. Wouldn't y'all think that's, that's helped us a lot in product selection? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you've got markers for salt tolerance, um, you know, that, you know, whether is it an includer or an excluder? You know that right when the cross is made. So all those things are very beneficial. So one of the things that is, we're not going to touch on it a whole lot here because really we're talking about product development and not, this is not a conversation about GMO versus conventional. But one of the things that, that we do know is that the GMO process has helped us in our breeding processes, helped us to be able to um, to develop things that probably we couldn't have developed, right? So the method there between GMO and conventional, would you mind speak to that just a little bit? How's a, how's a GMO product made versus a conventional product made? Well, conventional, conventional products are used um, just using the standard traditional uh, plant breeding methods that we've always used over time. And some, some companies have been very deliberate and very good at using the conventional base as uh, their platform. So they will continue to do an aggressive conventional breeding program so that the yield gain gets better and better and better, and then they can come back and introduce the latest and greatest trait that comes with that. Um, with the, it, with the um, invent of uh, GMO processes, uh, GN, GMO traits coming into the marketplace, uh, it's given us an opportunity to, to meet um, needs that farmers have for protection in, in, in the plant. Um, the GMO process has also made adoption of, of products faster 
uh, when you look at the um, um, vast majority of the products in the trade in the being uh, either some type of GMO base at this point versus a conventional base. Um, that creates competition. Uh, competition is good because it creates more products, and more products for farmers gives them more choice. All right, so you guys have done a really good job this morning of kind of giving a general overview of the industry and, and how products are brought to marketplace. I want to transition a little bit and talk a little bit more about armor and the specific processes that we use and, and how we get products to the marketplace. And so when the first thing that I think about is just a general philosophy. So why don't each of you verbalize to me, what do y'all think, what is our general philosophy at Armor Seed when we're looking at uh, releasing new products? Jeff? One of the things that we've always talked about when we uh, visit the discussion of product development at Armor is the methodology or the, the motto of trust but prove. So what we do is when we have conversations with genetic reps and genetic originators, we look at the information that they have, we look at the data that they have, we look at the package uh, of um, information that they give us, but then we begin our own process of evaluation. And in, in that process of evaluation is, can we trust what we've been told? Can we prove what we've been told? And then at that point, can we share what we've been told? And then we do that through educating our reps and uh, our seed reps on that, that, uh, that new product so that they can become um, advocates and ambassadors for that new product through the Armour brand. Jay, what about you? You've been around not as long, so what do you think about the Armour philosophy? Well, I, I would just add that on the prove part of trust and prove is um, that, that the prove is, is proved to ourselves, not only to the marketplace, but prove by experiencing with our own eyes. And, and I think one of the biggest parts that we're trying to prove is stability. Um, it may not necessarily be, it may not win every plot that we're putting it in, but it, it's going to be stable. It's going to be farmer friendly. And, and that's one thing that I think we, we strive to be, uh, find stable products, um, that won't let people down. One of the things that y'all have heard me say this before, but confidence is a byproduct of predictability and if our farmers can have confidence in what you just said jay that we're going to be able to to fairly not we obviously there are a lot of elements but we're going to try to figure out a way to put them in a position where our products are managed if they're managed correctly they're going to do what we say they're going to do would y'all agree with that absolutely yes. so when you think about the process for selection just for armor why don't you guys kind of – you can double-team it if you want to, Jeff. You can start off. Just kind of give us the process. Where does it start? Where are we at the spot where we think we can release something? The I guess the beginning part of the whole process to me is what we typically do in the fall with our sales team is we go through a needs assessment time. And um, so what, we, what we're looking for is in a particular market, what do we have that's working well? What do we have that's not working well, and what do you need? And then at, at that point, then we begin the process of taking those needs and be, beginning the discussions with our genetic reps and, and originators to say, okay, in this particular situation, we need this to do this. 
And at that time, then we look at what they have. We begin to put um, a testing set of information together. Um, and I'll, maybe I'll talk about corn and Jay can talk about soybeans. That'd be fine. The, um, on the corn side of things, um, we would sit down and develop what we call a mini-strip entry list. And the mini-strip is the kind of the first um, step in the testing process, the test-approved process. Each mini-strip um, will be replicated 25, 26 times across the South. They usually have 45 to 50 entries in them. And uh, we'll, we'll have competitive checks. We'll have commercial checks as well. And in, the, in those processes, uh, throughout the course of the summer, as, as they get planted, then we take notes on them. We take notes on all the entries in that trial, uh, even though the reality says at the end of the day, there's probably only going to be five, four or five products that may get released. So there's a ton of agronomic work that goes on prior to ever getting to the point of advancing a product. If, um, if we uh, kind of parallel to the testing process, the mini-strip testing process, if something looks really, really good coming out of the originator discussions, we might put that into some production as well so that uh, as we move it along in testing, it's coming along in production as well. Um, the the uh, cream of the crop, so to speak, coming out of the mini strips will move to what we call our commercial strip trials or CST trial system. And that's the plots that the sales reps plant. Uh, they do them on, you know, it's the traditional strip trial system where they do them on farmers' fields, farmer conditions. And uh, we may have uh, 40 to 50 of those CST trials across the country. So um, as Jay mentioned a while ago, we're, we're looking for stability uh, in a product performance. We may not uh, – if we just looked at paper at the end of the day and if we just looked at the yield data that comes in and one particular hybrid yielded better than everything else and we didn't go back and look at the ag agronomic package that that hybrid brought with it, we might miss something. We might release something that's not going to stand up very well Maybe it's going to be super susceptible to southern rust. So we go back and put all those agronomic notes together with the yield data and then begin to make those advancement decisions. And when the, when the sales reps get them in their commercial strip trials, that's when the light bulbs start going off. That's when they start seeing them. That's when their confidence starts to ramp up. And then they use those commercial strip trials to get, bring farmers in. Uh, and let them look, touch, and feel, and get acquainted with the new products in particular um, so that they're comfortable with them as they get released and moved into the commercial stage of production. So, Jay, wants to speak to soybeans a little bit. Well, uh, soybeans is very, very similar. Um, it may be faster, though. Um, we don't have, from the time we sit down with the originators, um, most of the time they will give us some parent seed, and then we may have an it will those products will then be in the CST trials and in university testing um, against other competitive uh, products. Um, but then if something is in the CST trials, there will be some production available um, to assume that if it hits, we will have an introductory introductory um, amount. Um, now it may take another year to get a really a ramped up amount if it if it were to become a large 
a volume product. Um, so the the only thing different with soybeans and corn is there's not a mini strip uh, set. Um, but then we do a lot of evaluating in those CST trials that the, the sales reps are uh, looking at to, to trust and prove um, those products. And just for those folks out there who may not know, the reason soybean could be easier in corn is because of the production process in general. We have to take corn seed and get it produced. Parent seed has to be crossed. It's grown as a hybrid versus where soybean seed is just grown as seed. So we, if we can get our hands on parent seed, we can grow soybean, whereas we're kind of at the mercy of the amount of parent seed in corn. Is that fair, Jeff? That's correct. Um, and and as Jay mentioned, you know we're we're uh, we're going to take uh, let's let's say it's a calculated risk with soybeans to pro to produce, and um, we may bring three or four lines along at the, uh, until we can identify what we think is the best at that point. Um, so we we won't uh, we won't produce something and release something. Just for the sake of being new, it's got to be better than what we've got. It's got to offer something more agronomically. Um, it's got to be better, a better choice for the farmer before it ever get released in an armor bag. Maybe a, a simplistic view of that from each crop is soybeans will grow, will be more aggressive with production, but just because we grow it doesn't really mean it'll ever get released. If it's not better than what we got, we're not going to release it. Whereas a lot of people in the industry might think, well, you're just releasing stuff to be releasing stuff. We, but that's not the, how we handle stuff. But if we, if we produce corn, we're probably releasing it because we've seen enough of it to know. Is that is that fair? Yeah, uh, there's an extra year really of looking at corn in the mini strips. Um, so that's just more experience and more confidence in those products. Um, from 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 us. So, you guys work in both crops. So I'm gonna kind of throw this one out to either one of you, both of you, whatever you got. So is there anything you can think of that the folks listening to the podcast might be interested in that might be a little unique to the crop? So, what what might be a little unique to corn that we look for or look at that people might not know about? Well, there's a variety of you know, there's a variety of things agronomically. Um, of course, everybody, you know, everybody wants yield. As we talked about before, that's table stakes. It's got to be a top-performing product. But there's a uh, each year it seems like we develop another new disease in corn. It may be, you know, Jay and I ran across some Diplodia leaf spot last year, Physoderma, Physoderma tar. Uh, tar spot there's something new every year curvularia so we're always looking for um, something that's going to give us a broader um, a broader disease package so I guess the 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 uniqueness in corn is it just seems like uh, nature as you mentioned earlier uh, nature will win and we've just got to try to stay ahead of the curve as much as we can agronomically you see anything on beans Jay well, I, I mean, I can think on beans, just after a few years ago, we are definitely on the lookout for target spot. And it and if we see target spot, we're trying to eliminate that, you know, very quickly. So um, I'm sure that'll bring it back some bad memories for lots of folks. Well, you know, that takes us back a little bit to what we talked about with the process. 
I didn't even think about target spot, but if these molecular markers, once we get to something like CRISPR, where we know exactly where that target spot is, we, we can eliminate that before it ever gets to the field, which, which I think is something that people don't, haven't given enough thought to when they think about how much research dollar and how much research money is being poured into, into our industry. And they think about how much a bag of seed costs, but really don't think about what the impact would be if we actually could eliminate target spot. If you never had to think about that again, it'd be a pretty big deal. Yeah, the science behind the seed is is a pretty phenomenal in the in the industry today. Uh, it's it's so far ahead of where we were uh, even ten years ago, and 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 it does not. It's not even on the same planet like it was twenty years ago. So we've we've kind of walked through the testing process. What when we get to the actual decision to release? You know, we're at a point where we've got all the data. Now, now we're in a position where we got to decide: are we going to release this or not? Kind of give us a little little overview of that. What's that look like at Armor? When we get to the point in the fall that we've we've done all the agronomic evaluations, and the you know late say mid August on corn, the, the data starts coming in from the strip trials and from the mini strip products. Um, at that point, then we begin to look and see: okay. These things did what we expected them to do, or these things did not. And at that point, then we'll usually have a kickoff meeting in late September, and we'll share with the team um, the new things that are coming into the pipeline. And I think one of the one of the neat things, and I've had a lot of good feedback about it uh, on the soybean um, testing program, is we'll use an X number. Um, an example would be like X forty six D O nine. And so if 46D09 becomes a release product, then it's already numbered, it's named, and the guys are comfortable with the number and they're good to go. So even customers have told us that, that they like that process. Um, and so they're all, they're, they've already begun to understand the number, they've identified the number with the variety, and then if it gets released, then they know what they're looking at when it hits the product guide is 46D09. So we were, again, talking a little bit before we got on here about some things that are maybe misunderstood about the trade sometimes because we make it look so easy. When we think about everybody wanting new products, everybody wants a new product every year, let's talk about the limitations of that a little bit because I think people need to know why. Sometimes they think we can just turn the spigot on, make these things uh, grow, but what are some of the limitations behind new releases? Why, why can a farmer not get all the new release he wants? Well, the the first limitation that comes to mind is, in say, in soybeans, is the amount of parent seed that we get. Um, you know, if we only get, say, enough for 800 acres of, of beans, and there's only going to be, what, 32,000 bushels of beans? So, I mean, that's um, – and then you've got one-to-one, -one, uh, roughly – um, bushels to bags, so uh, that's that's an introductory amount of one that hits and wins every plot, you know. So that that's a the first limitation right there. And when you think about that, there's some people who might think, well, thirty two thousand that seems like a lot, but when you got thirteen or fourteen sales reps, you divide thirty two thousand by thirteen, that's not very many. <laughs> so each sales rep's got two thousand bags, which, as we know today, growers are so large, two thousand bags sometimes doesn't even prime the 
the drill anymore. So that's that's one limitation. What else you guys can think of off the top of your head? I think, you know, corn's, corn's somewhat the same way. Um, you've got to develop the two inbreds before you can ever make the hybrid. And so inbred um, seed stock availability is also a key, just like it is with parent seed on soybeans. And uh, it, it's, you know, it's a little bit um, – it gets a little bit frustrating sometimes because on the product side, we're we're ch- always chasing the new, and sometimes it's um, sometimes we have to keep one foot in the the real world that says these are the current products that we've got to market for 2020, but there's a whole pipeline of new things coming for 2021 and beyond, and so um, it, it's a, it's a challenge. It's a real challenge sometimes. So I really appreciate you guys coming in and talking to us today about our about our product development and just the industry in general. I think it's been great. You guys did a great job. So we appreciate you being here. Thank you. Glad Thank to be you. a part of it. Enjoyed it. This is the Seedcast, brought to you by Armor Seed. Start strong. Plant armor.